Good morning, church. Um, welcome to Redeemer Odessa. We're glad you're here today. My name is Kendra House, and together with my husband, we help lead a community group. Today, I'm going to read from Psalm 13, so if you'd like to turn with me there. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider the answer, and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you, pretty lady from the church. (laughs) Hey, uh, good morning. My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us. Under your chair, there is a connect card. If you would take a minute, fill that out. Let us know how we could connect with you, how we could serve you, how we could get you plugged into the life of the body. And if you need a Bible, uh, you can raise your hand. Chad is back there. He'll bring you one. If you're on your phone or your tablet or something like that, we use the ESV. So if you have uh, been with us for, for any length of time, we've been in Mark for the last 18 months, and we finished that last week. Uh, and so today, we're going to begin a new series. Um, this is going to take us several weeks to get through. We're going to look at Psalms of Lament. Lament means a passionate expression of, of grief or sorrow. Uh, as an action, it's mourning the things in our lives and in this world that just, like, they're not right. Things don't feel right. Things don't seem right. Things just aren't right. In Christian lament, it is our, our prayer language. It's how we bring our sorrow and our grief and our struggle to God. Lament is the space between the two places, and it's how we navigate the space between the two places where life is hard and God is good. Where life is hard and God in his sovereignty, his kingly rule, his kingly reign, his kingly control is worthy to be trusted. So when you look at your Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, we see there are huge sections of Scripture devoted to lamenting. There's even a book titled Lamentations. 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 And, And when you consider the book of Psalms, there's 150 Psalms compiled into one book. And out of those 150, at least 50 of those Psalms, so like one third of the entire book of Psalms, are dedicated to lamenting. And yet, many times in the American Western church, we don't do a very good job of pointing people back to the deep mercies of God in the midst of sorrow and grief. And by this, I don't think this is done intentionally. We just live such busy and distracted lives that somewhere along the way, we've either lost our ability to sit in grief or lost our willingness to sit in grief, and we've lost our ability to mourn the way that our emotions ask us to. So I think our tendency, at least least mine personally, is to get through grief as fast as possible so I don't have to deal with it anymore. And in this process, with this approach, 
if we're not careful, we may miss some opportunities for some really sweet and intimate times with the Lord by not allowing him to minister to our hearts, to minister to our griefs, to minister to our sorrows, and we don't allow him to bandage our wounds and be the great physician that he is. So when you also consider most of our Western or Bible Belt West Texas church worship services, you may come into the worship service and listen to a message that's geared towards like prosperity or blessing, and then you hear songs that are celebratory, and we should sing songs that are celebratory because Jesus has risen, and he's defeated sin and death by means of his resurrection, and that is worthy to be celebrated, and yet... When our services are only geared towards upbeat, triumphant victory we have as Christians and our sermons don't engage hurting and struggling folks with, with anything tangible about how our weeping can turn to joy, we're neglecting God-given emotions that were given to us to reflect God as our creator. This is the same God that created us with these emotions and looked at our emotions and said, those are good. So emotions are good, and it is good to have them, and it's good to feel them. But when we neglect them, we can also be neglecting this reality that life is really hard, and things are not as they should be, and sin has marred everything. And people made in the image of God are carrying around heavy weights and burdens and just clinging to anything to hope in. And to hold on to. Man, when we're only upbeat and positive and not honest in or engaging in the full range of emotions that God has given us, we ignore the hurt and the sorrow of others and even within ourselves. And thus ignoring the command of Scripture to weep and to weep with those who weep. And therefore, we isolate those in grief and we isolate those in sorrow and we isolate those in crisis. We're not called to be ruled by our emotions, but rather they are given to us to to properly reflect the Creator God. And when we don't lean into this, we are also missing out on the beauty of leaning into the watchful care of God for us in pain. So my hope, man, over the next seven weeks is to help you put into practice how we bring our sorrow to God. Man, I know many of you really well. I know that the hurts in this room are ranging in severity and that they're unique to each and every one of us. And so as your pastor, I want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge that you're seen and loved by the Lord who wants you to bring your pain to him. So as I'm walking through my own journey through like healing and restoration through community and counseling in that order, I have experienced just a lot of grace and freedom through this often neglected prayer language. And my hope as a church over these next seven weeks is that we're seeking to recover the practice and language of bringing our struggles to the Lord as Christians in the midst of personal and spiritual struggle. Because God has given you permission to do so. And not only has he given you permission to do so, but he delights in you as, your, as his child. Man, I want to encourage you, church. Grieve. Grieve in the midst of pain and grieve towards Christ in the midst of pain. Lament doesn't promise you a quick solution or even, dare I say, any answers to some of your questions, perhaps. 
Yet it does point us back to and remind us of God's faithfulness to us. It can even provide you a glimpse, maybe, a glimpse to the purpose of your pain. So I want to call you to consider this. There is joy even in the struggle. And that joy is found in the hope we have in Jesus. Lament leads us to worship in the midst of pain and sorrow, and it leads us to trust in the one who is worthy of it all. Mark uh, Vrogrep in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, says pain can be a platform for worship. Suffering can lead to trust. Lament is the language for this transition. Psalms of lament, songs of sorrow are meant to move us from complaint to confidence in God. So with that as the backdrop for the next seven weeks, let's, let's pray and then just look at our text together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord, I just ask that you would minister to a lot of hurting and struggling and suffering people in this room this morning. Lord, the psalm says you're near to the brokenhearted and you save a crushed spirit. And so I just ask this morning that you would be diligent in that this morning. Lord, maybe even just bring some awareness of things that we've shoved down in our life that are ruling us and destroying us and we don't even know about it. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you do a work in our hearts this morning. Reveal sin. Lead us to repentance. Lord, bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. Bring conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we ask by your deep mercy that you would heal and restore this morning. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you'd pray for yourself. That the Lord would be active in revealing any areas of unbelief in your heart. That the Lord would impress on your heart this morning things you need to lament and grieve. And that the Lord would reveal himself to you high and resurrected and lifted up, King Jesus. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So before we uh, jump into this text, I think it's important for us to understand the structure of a psalm of lament. They always begin with an address to God, and this address is direct. Many psalms have this statement, O Lord or O God, and sometimes they're more intimate by calling the Lord my Lord or my God, like Psalm 22, for example. And with this address, the writer of the Psalms is acknowledging that there is nowhere else that he can turn to. If this situation is going to get any better for me, then God must act. Then this is followed up by lament or the cry for help or the complaint. And with razor-sharp specificity, the psalmist then voices his complaint and the reason that he is wanting to address God directly. Counselor Adam Young says, this is recruiting or inviting God into your struggle. So let's begin unpacking this psalm together. Psalm 13, uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So this is David. 
He's writing this psalm. Interesting thing about David is that Scripture says that David would be a man after God's own heart. And here he is in Psalm 13, directly addressing God and also calling out to the Lord in what feels like desperation. And then he follows that up by voicing his complaint with a series of questions. Some commentators suggest that this isn't just complaining, but David is actually accusing God as the source of his grief. He says, how long, Lord? How long are you going to forget me? How long are you going to hide from me? How long, God, I am wasting away out here. And a couple things I want to take note of here in these verses. This almost feels irreverent, right? Like, are you really going to talk to the God of the universe like this? But here's something to consider. The goal of lament is to move from complaint to trust. So the goal here is not to remain in complaint. The goal is to move by faith. Faith in the biblical sense meaning that we are abandoning all attempts to gain salvation in and through ourselves by good works or moral attempts to live the right way. But we are expressing complete and total dependency on Christ to act on our behalf. So the goal is to move to faith, by faith, and by dependency. But in order to move along this journey, in order to see our need for God and His work in our lives, we have to come to terms with our own brokenness in the process. And in order for that to come to light, we have to be honest with how we really feel. J. Josh Smith says, The Psalms of Lament give us what the church often doesn't, and that is the freedom to express how we really feel. And so again, if you're sitting here listening to the psalm and it doesn't feel irreverent or worshipful to you, and you may want to say, hey, this even sounds somewhat sinful to question God. We can argue whether or not this is a right view or a wrong view of of sonship, meaning our position in God as children of God. We can argue about that. But I think we could all agree upon this. Given the work of Jesus Christ to die on the cross for the sins of humanity, God then can handle the complaints of his children, sinful or not. By his grace and by his mercy to us, God can handle it. Now, this isn't an invitation. This isn't me up here saying, like, approach God with sinful motives. That's not at all what I'm saying. But rather, this is an invitation to approach God, your Father, in confidence, and know that He is pleased to act on your behalf because you are His child. And also consider this. While it may not feel right to express to God how we really feel, especially in a way like this, It may not feel right to you, but when you really consider the omniscient, all-knowing power of God, He already knows. So this is an invitation to be honest and acknowledge your feelings before Him. And I'd also say that even if your prayers feel like you're complaining, which you clearly have been invited to do based on the witness of the Psalms, and you don't like to complain, and you don't like complaining to God, I would say this. At least you are praying and directing your complaints to the only one, the only person that can really do anything about it. 
So listen to me, struggling saints in this room. God welcomes your honesty. It is through this type of honesty, through this type of vulnerability, that we grow in intimacy with our Father, who wants all of us, not just our best parts. And when you really consider the depths of your own sin, your best parts really do pale in comparison to the holiness of the God that we serve. Man, so as you're carrying around heavy burdens and heavy loads and some of you for months and years and all of your best practices to unburden yourself are leading you to more guilt, more fear, more shame, more condemnation and not more freedom in Christ, I'd implore you to lean into some honest prayer and some honest vulnerability with the Lord and with others particularly and especially the Lord, but also not to the neglect of community. And these two verses also give us an opportunity to consider our beliefs about who God is. David asked, Lord, have you forgotten me? Lord, do you not see me? Lord, do you not hear me? David is describing some uh, very human limits on a limitless and powerful God. God transcends time. God is beyond time. God is outside of time as, as the creator of it. And therefore, God is not controlled by time. As the faithful creator of all things, including emotions, God is also not ruled or governed by emotions. God is not like us in the sense that he is beyond us. Therefore, God cannot forget one church father, Augustine, says, uh, uh, God does not forget. And if you are a believer in Christ, God does not turn his face away from you. And yet, this complaint from David speaks to who we are as people. If we are honest with ourselves and one another, we have all felt this way at one point or another in our lives. Some of us even this very moment. Man, perhaps you're in here and you just feel like you're hanging on to any hope in God that you can muster because all of this feels so hard and hopeless. Man, we may be so overcome with grief and sorrow that this surely can't be how it's supposed to be, right? Man, if this is you, just hold tight for a moment. David is then taking the next step in this divinely inspired prayer to the Lord. He moves from lament and complaint to petitioning God, to asking God for help in the midst of his grief. Look at verse 3. It says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaking, shaken. David is asking God for three things. He says, consider me, answer me, and light up my eyes, he says. David is saying, God, please stop ignoring me. Please listen to me. Please respond to me. Please restore me. So I don't know if you all know this or not. But Texas is very hot, like really hot. Like I don't understand why it's so hot. And so because it's so hot, I've been spending a lot of time at the pool with my kids this summer. I don't own a pool, but my neighbor does and my in-laws do, and I'm not prideful. I'll swim in their pools. Um, 
And I usually, when we go to the pool, I take a book with me for the times when I'm not in the water. And, and my kids, a lot of times, don't want me to have any sort of relationship with my book at all. So I'm sitting there trying to read, and they start yelling at me from across the way like, Dad, Dad, Dad. And then I'm like, they're, I look up, and they're like, watch. And then they, like, jump in. And they come up, and I say something like, cool, or like, good job, you, you know, that old chestnut, if you're a parent in here. Um, so this is sort of what David is doing. He's remembering his position before God, not only as the king of Judah and Israel, not only as a Jew, the promised people of God, but as a son of God. He is not, he's asking not only the God of the universe for his attention, but he's calling upon his father for his father's attention. He's calling on his daddy to help him. This is a prayer for God to help. Man, I love this statement of David to God. David says, light up my eyes. I don't think I really considered just kind of the weightiness of all this and just the tender mercy of this until I became a dad myself. This is a picture of a father taking his crying son's face in his hands and just wiping away tears from crying eyes. Light up my eyes. David is asking for the Lord's blessing. And yet it appears that his blessing is going somewhere else. It's going to his enemies. And yet with this as a backdrop, David's accusations turn to petition. So what we see here is David is going from accusation and complaint to petition. David is starting to turn a corner. Daniel Aiken says that David has moved from longing or to longing from complaint. David has moved too longing from complaint. He longs for God to listen to him. He longs for God to restore him. He longs for God to bless him. And David is headed in the right direction. Whenever we move from accusing God to asking God, we are moving in the right direction. We are moving towards greater intimacy when the cry of our heart is one of longing for more of God. So that brings us to this pause. If you're in, the, if you're in your paper Bible, there's three, three paragraphs um, here. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses uh, 5 and 6. And so this is the next pause, the last pause. And this break is an intentional break in, in the writing. This shows us that grief and lament and restoration have a process. And here's where the shift takes place. In our complaint... We must move to this place, or therefore our complaint is simply complaining for self-indulgent purposes. It's complaining for complaining's sake. We have to move from complaining to God and even from petitioning God to trust in God. Look at the words of David, verse 5. It says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Man, this marks the final step in lament. 
We move from addressing God to complaining to God to petitioning to God. Then we are leaving the results up to him in the form of confidence in who he is and in praise to the one who is worthy of our confidence. Man, listen, I know in this room there are many, many hurts in many different areas. Relational hurts, financial struggles, professional struggles, and many more that I don't even want to pretend to understand. But I do know this. I know the Lord knows. And so my hope in these next few moments is that these words from David would be more to you, hurting and suffering brothers and sisters, that these words would be more to you than just words on a page in your Bible but that these words would actually reorient your hearts and turn your affections back to a God who sees you in the midst of pain and struggle and suffering and who is inviting you to lean on him in faith and in dependency and in confidence that he is going to act on your behalf. Man, also before we break this down for this particular song, I depended heavily on uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Vergop. He has this really beautiful section on David's posture of trust in these two verses that I'm going to borrow from in, in just a minute. So that's a, that's a little disclaimer. First, we see this word but, though, in verse 5. He says, but. Generally speaking, in Psalms of Lament, when the psalmist moves towards confidence in God, we see these transitional words, but, or however, or yet. So as you're reading your Bible, which you should be, as you're reading your Bible, you can identify the usage of these transitional words as impactful. These transitional words are not merely convictional terms of what we believe, but it is trusting. It's leading you to trust in spite of how things may appear. Trust is believing what you know to be true regardless of your feelings and regardless of your circumstances. And how do we know it is true? Well, if you're a believer in here, you have the Word of God to you. And if you're a believer, you know the Word of God is sufficient and authoritative and instructive to who we are as a people called into a relationship with Jesus. So that trust is born out of a commitment of being in the Word of God. So I'm in my 15th year of vocational ministry. And let me tell you what I have seen as a consistent theme over the last decade and a half in my life and in the life of other believers. You're either going through something, you're about to go through something, or you just got finished going through something. And it's just like a never-ending cycle. And in times of struggle, in times of heart, in times of grief, in times of sorrow, what you have been filling yourselves up with during these times of struggle will ultimately pour out of you. When you are squeezed by the world in grief and struggle and sorrow, when life presses you, what you have been filling up your heart and your mind with will just flow out of you naturally. It's like a fistful of jello. If you're filling your life up with worldly things, things that don't, don't honor God, then when you're pressed by the struggle, those things just come pouring out. If, on the other hand, you're filling yourselves up with the promises of God found in his word. You have your soul anchored to him by faith in what he has accomplished for you. The things of the Lord will come forth. 
We see this in David's lament. Though his circumstances are loud, his trust in the great God of his salvation has the final say. David, according to Dark Cloud's Deep Mercy, offers us three affirmations of trust, which we're going to look at. First, David says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is telling you to think back over the course of your life, to think back over previous trials and struggles, and to identify God's faithful track record of faithfulness to you. We can trust God because he is worthy to be trusted. Every Christian has a record of God's faithfulness. We see this not only in our own lives, but we can go all the way back to creation and move forward to the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ where Jesus has the final word over suffering. Because not only did Jesus suffer and die in our place, but because of his resurrection and his ascension, we now have a great high priest who identifies with us in weakness and in our suffering. Jesus knows our suffering. Jesus is well acquainted with our grief because he himself was well acquainted with grief in his life and in his death. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to be scorned and mocked. He has felt what it, has, what it feels like to have the God of the universe turn his face away from him while he is hanging on the cross dying for the sins of the world. Jesus knows because he has endured it all and bore it all on our behalf. And even when we leave him or forsake him, his steadfast love for his children endures forever to those who are in Christ and who are called according to his good and pleasing will for salvation. God's past faithfulness to me commands my present trust. Because of the past faithfulness of Jesus, we can trust him even in the midst of hard. And we can know that we're not alone because Jesus is with us through his Holy Spirit and by his very life he identifies with us. And also he has given us the church, his bride. Within community we can struggle towards Jesus together. Secondly, David says, my heart will rejoice in your salvation. This is a statement that connects our trust to God's redemptive work on the cross to save sinners. When you are a Christian, you are willfully submitting your life to Jesus. The whole thing. Not just when things are easy. God has created us for his good and pleasing will to the praise of his glorious name. And therefore, we are invited into his family and we are invited into faithful endurance and trust and dependency with him, even when we don't know the outcomes. Even when we don't know the outcomes, we can rest confidently in the one who holds the heavens and the earth in his hands. I want to gently submit something to you this morning. That even in the midst of your grief, even in the midst of your pain, even in the midst of your suffering, God is at work to bring about his good and perfect plan for your life, even when we can't see it. So we can trust him. Because he has granted believers in Jesus salvation by his enduring steadfast love to us on the cross, completed through the resurrection of Jesus, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of the unmerited, undeserved favor of Christ alone to us.
God has promised us that he is working for our good and for his glory, and nothing happens outside the sovereign goodwill of the Lord. He has promised us, believers in Jesus, he has promised you that your salvation is secure in him. And therefore, while these promises don't necessarily end the pain that we feel, when our hearts are reoriented towards trust and faith and dependency in Jesus, they can give our pain purpose. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think a better translation is, If God is for us, what does it matter who's against us? We see that God takes the pain in our prayers of lament and he marries them to his eternal promises of eternity with him. And therefore, while our grief and our sorrow may not subside immediately or even completely, we can be wrapped up in the beauty of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, that God became a man and lived a perfect sinless life and died the death we should have died and rose and is saving us from sin and death and is transforming us moment by moment into the image of Jesus. Therefore, our suffering as Christians who are committed and resolute in our posture and faith and dependency in Jesus, Jesus will bring about our glorification with him. What that means is this. The goal of the Christian life is not that we get to heaven and get spared from hell. That's not the goal. That is, however, an awesome reward, but that is not the goal. The goal of the Christian life is faithful endurance leading us to become more and more and more like Christ moment by moment by moment. The goal is that we would look more like Christ. And in the midst of struggle and suffering, God is strengthening us in him, making us more and more like him as we endure. And that endurance leads us to become more like Jesus. James 1 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The goal of the Christian life is perfect faith in Christ. And faith is perfected through suffering. What if, what if you ask the Lord to not deliver you from your suffering before he's developed you in the midst of your pain? That is a big and bold prayer. But the goal here is not comfort. The goal is perfection in Jesus. David ends by praising God in the third affirmation of trust. He says he's going to sing to God because God has dealt bountifully with him. David in this short psalm moves us along this trajectory of address to, to lament from accusation to praise. And if you're a Christian, this is true for you as well. David can rejoice in the salvation of the Lord. David doesn't know how this will end. There is no assurance of a quick resolution to his current plight, but he's confident in the Lord. The Lord has previously dealt bountifully with David, and therefore David is then pleased to draw out from this well of divine confidence that God is going to move again. 
So I want to acknowledge all of you in here who are dealing with hurts from one degree or another to some degree or another. I want to tell you that it's going to get better. I can't tell you when or how, but I do know that God is faithful. But here's a few things I want to offer you as we're wrapping up this portion of our service this morning. The path to healing and the path to restoration and the path to trust isn't the same for everyone and it isn't as straightforward as maybe we'd even like it to be, but there's blessings in the process. But here's what needs to be said. If you're going to heal and if you're going to deal with your grief and sorrow in a biblical way, you will need to then take steps of trust in God. The final step in lament is trust. And therefore, we have to make a choice to take that step. C.S. Lewis says that it isn't the load that breaks us down. It's the way we carry it. Therefore, for many of us, we will make a choice to remain cynical or bitter or stay in our complaints. And other times, we may never move beyond the request petitioning phase. Treating God like a genie and our relationship with him becomes kind of transactional. Like, God, if you help me now, I'll stop doing this or I'll start doing that. You know, I'll, I'll start doing the things I know you've asked me to do. Instead, we're asked to move from complaint to request to trust. Because we believe what God says, that he is working for our good and for his glory. Man, we're oftentimes so hesitant to, to lament. We're oftentimes so slow to approach God at all in the midst of pain and grief because we really don't want to be honest with ourselves or others or God. And yet, what lament teaches us is that lament leads to trust and confidence in God. By lamenting, we are turning to God in complaint and petition. And when we consider God's work in our lives, it lead us to tr leads us to trust him. Some of us don't want to lament because we don't want to face the truth of our own hurts. And some of us don't want to go to God with, with our struggles because our view of God is so low. We think, like, if God really did love me, it wouldn't be like this. Or we think because he does, we think he doesn't love us because we know what we've done. Or we think he's too busy for us. Or our problems are somehow beneath him, not big enough to really lay before him and bother him with. And none of that is the gospel. None of that is the good news at all about who God is. Rather, consider this. Isn't it amazing that we have a God who is a loving father, who is never annoyed with your complaints or your petitions. Sometimes we project our own parents onto the Lord. And that isn't at all the type of father that we have in God. God is never too busy for you. God is never too distant from you. God is never far away from you in spite of how it may feel. We can be sure, assured of this because of the cross of Christ. Man, maybe you're barely holding on in here this morning. I'd encourage you to pray to God and voice that. Pray and trust the one who keeps you trusting, as John Piper says. Lamenting pivots on the promises of God. Meaning that lament isn't an invitation to remain cynical and bitter and simply complain. No, lament turns us to trust and is dependent upon the promises of God to us. 
This God who has promised our good and our redemption. This God who who came and died in order to secure our salvation and our adoption in him. This God who loves us enough to save our souls for eternity is inviting you into faith by trust in him. In spite of you and in spite of your circumstances. Listen, you are not unwanted. You are not unlovable. You have not outsinned the reach of God's redeeming hand to save your soul. This is an invitation to trust him by faith for not only the salvation of your soul, but also your moment-by-moment existence. Man, I don't want to minimize anybody's hurt in this room, but there is a real danger in allowing our hurts to cloud our view of God's work and God's plan and God's love and God's purpose for us in all of this. Therefore, grieve. Grieve your losses. Grieve the horrific things that have been done to you. Grieve and mourn your broken or struggling marriage. Grieve your miscarriage or your desire to be a parent and that not happening yet. Grieve your desires for a spouse. Grieve over abandonment from friends or family or the relationship you had. Grieve over your wayward children. Grieve over the death of your parent. Grieve over your relationship with your own parents and what that's done to you as an adult. And grieve by faith in the one who sees you and wants you and can handle your complaints and your accusations. Grieve towards Jesus. Get in his word. Connect deeply within the church. Allow other suffering and hurting brothers and sisters through community into your struggle to help bear your burdens, as scripture says, and in doing so, fulfilling the law of Christ. David, throughout the Psalms, talks about the law being his sustenance. Even in his sorrow, David is holding on to the Word of God. He finds comfort in the Word of God. The Word of God highlights God's holiness and His Word to us. It's His goodness, and His goodness is what we lack. Knowing His goodness and His righteousness builds our trust and reliance upon Him, and it reveals to us even how helpless we are apart from Him. Man, we need his work in our lives or none of this gets better. We are so in need of help, not only for our day-to-day, but for the salvation of our souls, that God himself came to die to bring us to faith and repentance and to seal our adoption in him. The Lord, by his grace and mercy, has made a way for you to be reconciled back to him by repentance of your sin and by faith in the perfect and completed work of Jesus on your behalf but it doesn't just end there. Christ doesn't rise and create a way for us to be reconciled and have eternal life and say, hey, good luck. No, he's with us. He's with us through his Holy Spirit every step of the way in the good moments and in the horrible ones. His blood is interceding for us. He is beckoning us to come to him with it all because we have been adopted as sons and daughters. God wants good things for his children. And God is pleased to give us everything we need in him. And that means he has given us himself. And he is willing to minister to our hearts in joy and in sorrow. Lean on Jesus, man. Cling to Christ and trust the one who keeps you trusting. Let's pray.